Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we have another great episode for today. Had a great prep call with our next guest and uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I can't wait to get started with the show. So please welcome to the show, Marie Elliston. Hello, Marie. Hi, how are you, Justin? I'm very well, very excited to uh, be having this conversation with you today. So let's go ahead and just get started right away. Tell me what is the biggest challenge you see facing the deskless workforce today? So in my previous role, it was in healthcare and we had frontline workers um, in homes, uh, primarily before COVID, but then after COVID, these were people with chronic health conditions so they could no longer go into the hospital to manage. So we were delivering medical devices to the patients. And unfortunately, most of these frontline workers were not skilled. Most of them were just your basic caregivers who did their normal day-to-day activities. And so we were having to go in and help train them to use these medical devices to help the patient, to help us do troubleshooting in case the information wasn't getting uploaded to their doctors correctly. So just like Something as simple as Wi-Fi was a challenge because a lot of these um, people are skilled caregivers, but they're not technicians. And so going to provide support to them one-on-one virtually, you know, over the phone, they're holding their phone in one hand, trying to adjust this device and make it work. And so it was really frustrating for them because they felt like they should have all these answers. And then they were worried that the patients wouldn't adopt the wearables because they felt like the wearables were too difficult. And then now in my current role, I've switched over to manufacturing. And so we're out in rural areas and mills. And so it's a combination of time because we've got to keep the machines running, but we've also got new technology and new innovation that we're doing. Also, we have new sustainability requirements that we're trying to keep them upskilled on. So it's the amount of information that's coming at them. And so I think it's a combo of time, the amount of information, and then like troubleshooting ability, I think are probably the three main frustrations that I'm hearing from most of my learners. So I asked you for a single biggest challenge and you gave us three right out of the gate. I mean, you're breaking the rules, but, okay. uh, but, but that is really fascinating. And in fact, you, you're reminding me of something that I read earlier this week, which is that the, we, we have this, um, we hear a lot about AI and automation and a lot of the new technologies that are coming and how they are really designed to make the lives of humans a lot easier. Somebody made the point in something I read that is, they those tools are often taking the easiest, most repetitive tasks away from the humans. But what it's leaving left for the humans to do is actually some of the more complicated troubleshooting things where automation and AI can't fix it because it's not predictable and regular enough. And as I think about that 
lined up with what you just described, you know, just the amount of information, the time constraints that they have, the complexity of some of this technology that they're probably just not adequately trained on. And now they're having to be, you know, troubleshooting. They were hired as a caregiver, but they're also now a tech gadget troubleshooter as part of that job, right? There's a lot going on in there. Yeah. And when you don't give them the skills and the confidence, you don't give them a place to practice because usually we're shipping the wearable because it's expensive directly to the patient. So they haven't even like practiced on a dummy. Like they haven't even had a chance to like try it on themselves because, you know, it's a wearable. So, you know, cleanliness issues and during COVID, you know, everybody was sanitizing everything. So it was, they didn't have a chance to like practice and play with it and get comfortable with it and just like understand from the patient's point of view, what this felt like. So I think, again, I'm a big proponent of, you know, giving people a play space, whether it's a sandbox, if it's AI, let the people get used to it in a safe environment rather than just throwing them into production and being like, hey, good luck. <laughs> let me know how you do. Yeah. Well, and, and you talked about the, the two key words, which is confidence and confidence. We hear that a lot on the show and in my day job. I think the the confidence piece is hugely important. I think the the competence, the understanding of how to do things is obviously incredibly important and that may be more the more obvious one. But I think when we're talking about roles that are customer facing, having the confidence to master those technology interactions so that they can represent them well with their constituent, whether that's a field service worker that's calling on a customer, or in your case that you were describing a caregiver with a patient, in either case, they have to have a certain level of confidence to really be able to, to go into that home and in the case of healthcare or into that facility and go work on those things and feel good about it. And, yeah. and what we've seen is countless situations when they lack that confidence, they end up ignoring or avoiding the work that needs to get done. They don't get the customer comfortable with that technology. They don't get them onto that system and they end up avoiding it likely because they don't have the confidence to use it themselves. Yeah. And they're supposed to be the expert. They're supposed to be the one teaching and demonstrating, but they're not comfortable with it themselves. So nobody wants to be put in that position where they already feel like they're set up to fail. And I think besides just confidence, it's most of these people have chosen these professions because they are kinesthetic learners, meaning they need time to fail. They need time to figure it out for themselves. And it's the people that kind of like dig in and figure it out because they want to be good at it. Those are the ones that we end up having them become the experts and the teachers to the other people, their peers. And that seems to work a lot better than, you know, say having some expert you know, who is a technician, who is very technologically savvy. It's like, no, let's have a regular person who's got to do this day in and day out, teach you the ins and outs so that it makes sense to you. Because somebody that teaches for a living, like it's easy for us because we're so used to it. But somebody that doesn't teach for a living normally, it's very frustrating because we, we want to look like an expert and we right. want to make sure that the patient has a good experience and that they will adopt the technology themselves. So I think the other piece of that is, is, you know, when they are frustrated, you know, giving them the support, you know, they do have a phone, they have an app or something, they can call and, you know, at least get a quick chat of, 
hey, this is offline or whatever, so that they feel like they still have support while they're in the field. And so we're big proponents of providing apps so they can get chat, so they can quietly message someone and say, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. What should I do? Rather than being on a phone call or being on a video chat, trying to walk somebody through something in front of a patient or a customer. Yeah. Okay. I'm already getting too far down the path. You're, you've given me so many notes already okay. that I have things to come back and, and dig a little bit deeper on, but I want to give our an audience a, a chance to learn a little bit about who they're hearing from here. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are. One thing that's interesting, you've mentioned healthcare, you've mentioned manufacturing already. So I'd like you to give some context to our listeners about you know the, the two different roles that you've had most recently, but give us a little bit about your background. So I'm Marie Elliston. I'm a instructional designer by trade. That's how I started, but I just really loved learning. So I kept going back to school myself. So I went to University of West Georgia, got my PhD, um, worked there for several years while I was working on my PhD and then realized that I my first love was corporate. I love learning. I love being on the cutting edge of learning. And unfortunately, in university, that's not really the case. So I went to healthcare, um, Elevance Health and Ingenio Pharmacy, which is formerly Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. So we were training um, doctors, nurses, and then in the field, caregivers. Uh, specifically during COVID, we were doing everything remotely so that doctors were getting the information they needed on the fly. And so that's where technology and AI really kind of came in. And then after COVID was over, we all kind of just decided we needed a break and I just needed something new. So I switched completely over to manufacturing. And so now I work for Westrock and I'm the commercial learning and development lead. And I work with an amazing team of people who are innovators and sustainers and trying to keep our plants and our trees alive and sustainable. And so I love that mission. And so that's why I chose to move. I, I think your company, Westrock, may be one that's around all of us all the time, but we don't know you by name. Can you just exactly. tell, tell our audience a little bit more about what you guys do just to uh, satisfy so the we curiosity? Do, we, so Westrock is a conglomeration of many companies. So we're now um, pretty much global. We do global paper, which is like the raw materials supplies. We do corrugated, so any boxes. So our famous thing is Amazon and pizza boxes. If you flip your box over, sometimes you'll see a seal at the bottom of the box. And it, some of the customers allow us to say restaurant. Some of the customers don't. And then we also do like pharmaceutical packaging, medical packaging for Amazon, like pill pack. We also do like high-end beauty um, and food and beverage. So we're very diverse. So Amazing. chances are you've touched a West Rock package at some point. You just probably didn't know. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about my work. And, and now the podcast is just hearing about companies around just behind the scenes of the global economy and all the things that we just take for granted as we are consuming things in our world and all of the companies that it takes to yeah. make all that happen. So it's fascinating to hear a little bit about that. There's something else I'm curious about, and this isn't necessarily uh, topics typical for the podcast, but 
I came away from our prep call with the same question and I realized maybe I just don't understand the healthcare insurance business. You were at Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. I'm very aware of the Blue Cross Blue Shield system. I've been a customer at times, but I was surprised to hear that the insurance company would be doing training for doctors and nurses. What was the role there? Because to me, it, it didn't seem like, I didn't think that those um, employees would work for Blue Cross Blue Shield, but maybe you had a role in educating them still, obviously. I'm just curious about how that worked. So there's there's two sides. So there's in-house. So we do what's called uni- utilization management. So MDs have to review cases to see whether they're medically appropriate, that the patients are getting the best level of care, and they have a team that they coordinate with to make sure that their care is comprehensive and make sure that they get whatever the best in class level of care is. And then we also have a line of nurses and other clinicians. We also have a mental health side as well. So they all need continuing education to stay certified and to stay current in their business. But then we've also launched this medical wearable business. And then we also have provider education as well, teaching them you know, how to maximize revenue for their company, how to be successful, how to streamline their patient processing and care, and how to basically make a clean workflow. So again, still using technology to do training remotely, especially during COVID when things were changing so rapidly, we were using MS Teams and our phones to like talk to people out in the field. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to That's get crazy. them the most accurate information just in time. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. So in that role, then just from the Blue Cross Blue Shield perspective, those MDs and nurses were not providing care directly to patients. They were an oversight role. Yes. providing support for all of the healthcare providers that were caring for us patients and they were an oversight from the insurance company's perspective. Okay, that makes a lot more sense and didn't yeah. I didn't connect with that originally. Yeah, um, and they're doing like best practice on the fly during COVID trying to, you know, figuring out as it went. Yeah, I, I can't policies even policies and procedures are being written, they're being rewritten, they're being changed and so that needs to go out immediately to the providers so they understand what's covered, what's not covered and <laughs> Yeah, no, that all makes perfect sense. All right, well, let's let's get into the meat of some of because you have your background is perfect for some of the things I'm dying to sink my teeth into here. So, technology adoption is always a challenge. It's why we have the show. It's what we talk about. We're over 100 episodes into this now, right? So the problem is fairly universal. I'm very curious, particularly in the wearables piece. That's an interesting space that we haven't talked about a ton on this show, and so I'd like to explore that a little bit further. Tell me about some of the challenges. You, you've already shared some of this and that some of the people who held a critical responsibility in this flow of activity did not have a chance to really become proficient with those tools, yet they had to kind of go on stage in front of your customer. So that's clearly one of the problems. Um, but I'd just like to hear a little bit more about the other things that you experienced there and, and perhaps what were some of the ways that you began to re- remediate those challenges. So we started doing open like MS team calls. So everybody would get on video and kind of do their own like demonstration. So we could kind of learn best practices from each other of what worked, what didn't work so that we weren't repeating the same mistakes over and over because, you know, most self-taught learners 
most kinesthetic learners, they just keep trying the same thing, hoping someday it's going to happen. And so getting that input from their peers and getting that learning and then a place to kind of like share frustration of, okay, this doesn't work. And then that turned around to be good feedback back for the tech team too of, hey, this is too difficult. The way this is designed needs to change. So it actually kind of became like a continuous improvement circle of this is what's working well. This is what the patients are liking. This is what the provider's liking. And then this is how you can improve your product and, and make it more effective so that the doctors get that just-in-time real information without having to actually see their patient. So it was really a fun, frustrating and fun exercise. Yeah. So the continuous improvement loop is something that uh, just gets me so frustrated because I see so many companies missing that opportunity. Give us some ideas about how you were able to make that effective. Because when you say that out loud, everybody says, of course we should be doing that. Uh, it makes so much sense. Why wouldn't we have a feedback loop from those experiences in the field to bring that back into design and even to alter learning content going forward so that the next group of folks can benefit from those learnings that we just had where we may not have optimized this content yet, right? Every single day we see cases where that's just not happening, even though it seems obvious. So what did you guys figure out that allowed that to flow a little better? Well, we ended up doing like process flows, like especially when we were trying to make it easier to train people, because again, like stuff was changing off the fly. So, you know, we started out with just doing like almost like a notebook that was step by step. And so as we would change things, we could see the different versions. And so as things got changed on the field, we would turn around and send that back to our designers. So um, I view that kind of as like our PM role where they are responsible for those lessons learned and then going back to the product managers and letting the product managers understand, you know, these are the problems that we're facing. Here's potential solutions that we're getting from the field because usually those people who are the ones that are the end users usually have the best inclination and idea of how to improve it. So not just, you know, sending back, you know, work tickets, but also sending back solutions. And I think that was kind of the key with the adoption of the designers is like, oh, they're not just giving me work tickets. They're actually coming back with the solutions and that they've tried several things and couldn't get it to work as intended. So again, it wasn't just, oh, it's just the machine isn't working. It was like, no, we, we've tried everything. We did all the troubleshooting. This really is a de design glitch or whatever. That's really interesting. And so one of the takeaways from that, and, and as you say that, it, I'm thinking about something that we've experienced in my day job, that there needs to be a clear delineation between a, a bug and a, and a feature request or an innovation request, right? And- the first step, at least in our business, is figuring out, is it working as designed? That's not a bug. That's maybe you know a UX issue that we have to address. If it's doing exactly how we programmed it to do, then that's one thing, right? Yeah. Or designed it. But if it's doing what it's supposed to do and we still don't like it, now that's an enhancement request. 
And we separate those things so that we can communicate more effectively internally about which is which, right? And so it's interesting to hear you even talk about the product managers being a part of that loop. Again, it's one of those things that sounds obvious. Why wouldn't the product managers want to get that feedback? But as you say that, I, I wonder at times if maybe that's part of what's missing sometimes is that there's a gap between the people using it and the product owners who are responsible for the design and, and helping to craft those innovations. I think it comes down to accountability, I guess, because I started out in special ed because I was a kinesthetic learner myself. It's like, yeah, the people that pushed me to work harder is because they held me accountable. And so that's what I do is like, have you tried everything? Here's all the tips and tricks that I know to make this work. Here's what I've done when I've done my research on whatever it is I'm teaching you, hoping that, you know, you're going to benefit from my tips and tricks but also going up the chain to hold them accountable and say, look, you know, we've trained as is I've documented, here's the steps, here's the videos of the training call. So it's just like a Monday night football Sunday review saying, Hey, we tried it. We filmed it. It's not working. So what's yeah. next? Were these product managers internal to your organization or were these third-party vendors? Uh, both, both. Some of the stuff we couldn't, so the internal PMs were more the like, this is how we're going to do the deployment side, yeah. which also was problematic with supply chain. But yes, we also had external vendors who are PMs as well, who are on the development side and creation side. And did you find you got the same level of engagement from those external PMs? I feel like the external were actually more engaged because we were kind of their beta market because we were so big and we were global. So if it wasn't working on a large scale level, they knew they weren't going to be able to grow and they knew their company would be crushed. So they, I found they had more of the like tech startup mentality where they were like, look, if this doesn't work in this size, we're never going to get off the ground. So I really appreciated the fact that they did listen and they did you know, make adjustments when requested. As you think back on that, if you found yourself in that same situation again, are there things that you would do differently based on what you know today? Of course. Yeah. Anything come to mind right have, the gate? I think I would have started the like videoing and documenting that yes, we've tried everything that's been suggested way sooner in the process. That like, we came to that kind of a little bit late in the game. Whereas I just kept like, this is supposed to work. Just do it. Just do it. And I think now I've kind of come back and said, no, let's really listen first and then figure out where the issue is. And I'm a big process map person. So kind of like looking at the chains of where the breakdowns are, you know, is it patient caregiver? Is it patient device? Is it caregiver device? So really pinpointing where the issues are and assigning that. So again, is it more training? Is it retraining or is it literally going back to the PMs? So yeah. I think getting better at that diagnosis and that accountability web, because it, it does get muddy. And were you, I assume you were taking those videos and sharing them with the product managers. I think you mentioned that earlier, right? So, so that was, it, it wasn't just you coming back verbally and saying, Hey, I think the people are struggling because of these two things. And it yeah. kind of becomes vague anecdotal, you know, rather than come and say, no, watch this video, watch how this user was clicking here when they should have been clicking there. 
and and then the app would do this thing that they weren't expecting. Right. That's interesting. Were there any special tools that you were using in that process other than just like screen grabbing tools and stuff? We were or? doing it with our phones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of our caregivers didn't really have technology. They had their own personal cell phone half the time. They didn't even have a work cell phone. So yeah. it was really just, you know, record the patient as they're doing it, upload that to me, and then I'll get it, you know, edited and documented and then show where the glitches are. And then, so there was like that troubleshooting piece we took care of. It was just go out, shoot the video, and then we'll do the rest kind of partnership. Because again, I didn't want to put more work on the overburdened caregivers. I just wanted an easy way to show what their frustration was and get that documented first person so that they really felt like we were doing something about it. Yeah. So we've interviewed probably something around the neighborhood of 50 organizational change management professionals on this podcast. So that collective group is sitting on my shoulder right now, listening to this, and they may even actually be listening to the podcast. And they're saying, hey, that's great that we're making all these changes now as a result of the feedback loop. But what about the other side of that feedback loop that says, okay, how do we now inform the folks in the field that, okay, we heard you. And as a result, we made these changes and this is how it's going to impact you. Tell me about that side of the feedback mechanism. Yeah. So that's where I come in. I'm the cheerleader, you know, communication gal. That's me. Like when you hear from me, it's because I have big news. And so I do, I celebrate those wins and I'll like specifically call out the people that had the issue and what they said to fix it. And then I will, you know, celebrate that person and we'll do like little mini virtual parties with them. And and really get them involved in the process so that they feel like they're part of this bigger thing because they do feel so isolated and they are not celebrated in any way. They have probably one of the toughest jobs. And so really making them feel heard and understood and that they had a direct contribution in what this company is going to provide to their patients. And then also kind of sharing the why of why this is so important for healthcare and why this is going to help these long-term chronic patients have a much better quality of life and hopefully need less caregiving. <laughs> yeah. No, that that's really great. Were there any times when changes that were requested by a, a bunch of folks, you just couldn't make them happen because maybe they just weren't really great ideas? At or a financial. Level? Or they financial. Were great ideas, they were just way too expensive to make those modifications. Even a better, a better example. So what happened in those cases? Because I, I always feel like that's an awkward part of the feedback cycle that we don't always talk about. Sometimes like, be careful what you ask for, you might get <laughs> some feedback that you now can't deal with. So how do you deal with that? Well, and I'm really honest and I'll say, you mm-hmm. know, this, this was just way too expensive. It's a great idea. And we're going to work towards that in a future, future iteration, but we have a lot more R&D we've got to get through. We've got to struggle through what we have and make it work until we can get to that place. So I think it's just being really open and honest and transparent and just being very clear that, you know, we are doing everything we physically and financially can do. And so I think they see both sides of that, right? Like they get it, you know, there are financial constraints. And so when you're open about that, because a lot of places don't, you know, they don't talk about budget. Like I'm, I've sit in on many PM meetings that we never talk about numbers ever. And it's yeah. like, 
why not? You know, we need to talk about that. And I'm always the, you know, because training is never a revenue generating field. So I'm always very conscious of showing how I bring value. And so, you know, with those ideas, you know, I'll say these are the ones that brought value and this is what it did for the company and this is how much it earned. And then if we were to make these changes, it would cost this and that would financially bankrupt the company. And so I'm just, I'm very fair. I'm very impartial, but I played both sides of the field. And I think people trust that because they know if I can do something, I will move mountains to do it. And if I can't, I will be honest and I will tell you why I can't. Yeah. I think the consumerization of technology in a lot of ways, I think sometimes has made that seem, uh, made that conversation a little bit difficult because it's, it almost seems like nothing's impossible. When you, when you think about what we can do with the phone in our pockets or the smartwatch or the gadgetry in our cars and stuff like that, like it seems so accessible. So when a team comes back and says, Hey, our job would be easier, better customer experience would be better. If only we could do this thing. Uh, yes, it, it's not that it's not technically possible. Of course it is, but just as something as simple to a user as adding a button or getting a new report or something like that, that seems trivial often isn't at all trivial to actually go execute on that, right. In an enterprise context. And, uh, I know that can be very frustrating. I, it's frustrating for me and I understand a good part of how things work behind the scenes or at least enough. And it's still frustrating for me. I still want to just be able to add that button or that new report. Right. So it's, it's really fascinating to explain to folks that aren't in the day-to-day grind. Yes. It's a good idea. Yes. It would make sense. No, we can't do it. (laughs) But here's why. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's really good. Tell me about the the healthcare piece. I, I feel like I have this massive blind spot in healthcare And yet, when you and I talked on our prep call, one of the things that came up in that conversation that I want to share with everybody is just um, the similarities between many things in healthcare and a big area of focus for this show in 2023, which is field service. And as you described to me, this home healthcare business and the activities and the workflows, it occurred to me, if you just change a couple of things, a couple of words that you're using you're basically describing a field service tech, right? One may be trained to repair refrigeration equipment and elevators. The yep. other is a caregiver providing care to a patient. Yep. But from a, a learning standpoint, from a technology standpoint, there are probably more similarities than differences between those roles. And I was really fascinated by that. So the one thing that I think is very obvious to me, because I've probably spent more time in the field service realm in that traditional sense, is like the impact of things not working well in the field. I understand what it means when a field service tech can't find the right part number in his or her software, or I, I you know, um, can't find the information about their warranty that they're working on for the customer, stuff like that. So I understand all those impacts. I'm not as clear on that on the healthcare front. So when one of those caregivers was showing up at a patient's house, help us understand like what falls apart when they're not able to use the technology right. How does that experience get broken? So the patient ultimately does not get the care that they need, right? If they don't have the right supplies, if the right type of wearable wasn't sent, you know, if there's any kind of like patient allergy that they have, you know, latex or you name it, if there's anything that's um, unclear to the patient in terms of instructions and 
You know, a lot of the patients have like cognitive or communication issues themselves. A lot of them have mental health issues because they're so isolated. And so when you're trying to like do the triage part of your job to try to figure out how to make this person feel better, you know, you kind of take that on. And so it's very hard for you to not be able to deliver something that this person really needs that you know could ultimately improve their quality of life, just like a technician. You know, when my cable goes out, my computer goes down, I throw a temper tantrum <laughs> because I can't do anything about it, but I'm right. dead in the water if I don't right. have my Wi-Fi. Yep. So they have that same level of frustration. So using technology, as I always say, is great when it's working, but what do we do when it's not working? And so trying to give them workarounds and giving them other skills of ways they can do that care without relying 100% on the technology. Yeah, you talked about that actually early when we first opened up the conversation. You talked about um, when they are frustrated, when they get in a bind, how do they get support? What are some of the solutions that you've you've put in place for that? Like, I mean, is it just we having a, the a app? So they get chat, they get 24-7 customer service. You know, we have people in the Philippines and India. So even if it's an overnight care situation, we have people on staff so they can at least kind of walk them through the basics. And then if it's something really big, then it'll get escalated up. And so somebody in the US will be woken up. But yeah. you know, in some cases, this is just uh a minor thing that they just misunderstood. And so usually they can take care of it at that kind of tier one level. And probably, you know, 20% of the time, it's it really is a true issue where it's it's going to be a life quality issue. And so you really need to get that result to that person immediately. So, and then in some cases, we have to have another technician go out and, you know, do the work in the field for the caregiver. And that's our like worst case scenario. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, when, when you said something, you know, the words came out of your mouth very simply, uh, an allergy to latex, right? If that information isn't shared, you know, if, if I'm a field tech and I bring the wrong parts kit to fix or piece of refrigeration equipment, uh, not the end of the world, right? Nobody gets sick as a result of that. In this case, if there are circumstances that I don't address because we had an, uh, a gap in the information flow, like there's there's a bigger impact. It's just a real human impact. That's, it's, I think okay. the similarities are more than the differences in this case because you know technically we are just parts and our parts are wearing out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, our, yep. We have a diabetic pump because our pancreas is worn out. And so now yep. we're trying to make do with this artificial pancreas now. Yep. So getting people to understand, you know, how to make those modifications and, and do this life adjustment that they need to do. They can't do the things they used to do all the time. And so getting them to figure out those workarounds and especially teaching them how to be creative in the way they come up with problem solving. And I think that's probably what we teach the most is that critical diagnosis and thinking so that they can kind of rule things out and rule things in. It's fascinating. I, I don't know that I've ever shared this on the show before, but it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about right now. But my son is a type one diabetic. He was diagnosed um, back in 2016. And so, you know, as a pretty tech savvy family, we were uh, pretty early adopters of Dexcom glucose monitors and um, Omnipod pumps. So we've okay. been through this round and round. And 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we've we've been using all this technology, and I do um, think about how fortunate we are that my son is pretty tech savvy. You know, he's grown up in a you know his his digital era. So you know, I would say to him, hey, you can somehow figure out how to do things on Xbox and PlayStation. So you could probably figure out how to use this Dexcom app, right? Yeah. And you know, as that's you know part of his caregiving family, we would be able to quickly identify and resolve issues. And it wasn't a big stressor for us. It was still a stressor. My son had diabetes, right? It sucked and we had to deal with that. But I felt very fortunate that the technology was available and that we were in a pretty good position to figure out how to make that stuff work. But I get on Facebook on some of the diabetes groups and stuff like that, that I'm on on Facebook, just to kind of keep up with what's going on. And I see people that are in absolute panic and crisis mode. And there's an amazing community around these folks, but that technology, it's, I mean, it's not, it's, it's difficult and things go wrong. Things go wrong every single day. And this is literally a life and death situation for many days, folks. Um, so now as you're telling the story and I'm thinking about putting caregivers who have all of the constraints of typical corporate liabilities and, you know, in our system, how things work that way. And we're yeah. trying to do the best that we can to provide care for those folks. That's a really difficult situation that we're putting these folks into. Well, and there's more than one chronic condition they're dealing with too. Like on yeah. their heart monitors, they have pacemakers, yeah. we have, you know, got, you know, asthma, they have breathing treatments, you know, they have oxygen, like stuff that doesn't seem like it's technology, but when you're trying to deal with all of it and make sure it's all working together and yes, some stuff's compatible, some stuff's not compatible. And so you have to figure out, you know, what's the best solution. And it really is like triage out there. And so giving the caregivers those skills with technology by providing those apps and providing that support and like, you know, even just putting out courses on their phones so that they can you know, between appointments, hopefully upskill if they, especially if they have a new patient, they're not familiar, you know, they've got to like read their history really quick. So they're, they're familiar what they're walking into, but also like what kind of technological challenges you're going to have. And then we also started documenting, you know, if they had chronic problems with their tech, what those were and what the solutions were so that they could kind of walk in of, okay, this is what usually gets this working again, or that's what gets this offline and back online and so getting them you know some kind of troubleshooting before they even walk in the door so they feel a little bit more prepared when you said when they were having chronic problems with their tech you meant your patients when the patients were having chronic problems with the tech yeah now you could go create some quick start guides of some format to say hey when you're having a problem with this type of device this is the best way to to troubleshoot that and sometimes patients sabotage their stuff because they like extra care. And this is a great way to get extra care. And they don't like their whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, that that's actually, um, that's there's, hard to get your head wrapped around. monkey but wrenching in there too. <laughs> no, no question. I, I can see that completely. And that <laughs> that one may be beyond the scope of this podcast because I think there's definitely some interesting psychology stuff that's affecting them that perhaps is quite a bit different than a field service technician but I can imagine that so these folks I mean this this is why but we again, have this podcast. you have to have that skill to diagnose is this truly a technology thing because I could spend two and a half hours trying to fix your thing when I really needed to realize no this has been sabotaged and maybe a technology person wouldn't go there and think about the psychology side of it 
this is an amazing burden for these caregivers. It's really pretty incredible. And and I appreciate you opening my mind to this. Um, it's really just given me a lot to reflect on. So I, I do want to now, we're already running short on time here, but I, I have a few more questions. I just have to get out. So I'm, I'm very curious now to jump over and kind of make that transition. So you've had a very interesting path and I know you've only been in the new role for a little while here. And so you may not have a ton of experiences to share, but maybe we can just focus on what are some of the early observations that you've made in your new organization and role that are different between healthcare and some of these processes that might look very similar and field service? What are some of the things that have kind of jumped out to you? Um, so now we're like in a very large like mill environment. And so the, it's usually in very rural areas. It's usually people who, you know, maybe have high school, most probably don't. So education and learning is not really something they want to do. A lot of them don't have home computers. A lot of them really just use their phones to call and take pictures. And so getting people comfortable with this machinery, but then having to go offline and go learn about it is, is different because they can't go in and play with a multi-million dollar machine. You know, they've got to know what they're doing before they get there. So we're doing a lot of like simulations with them so that they can get practice online similar to a video game. So they see how the machine runs. They see what to do if there's an issue with the machine. So we don't just show happy path, but we also show the issue path. So they kind of know, okay, this is how the machine should operate. This is what a healthy operator does. But then when you have issues, these are how you go in and take care of those issues. So to me, there's a lot of crossover. And so i feel like, again, giving them a place where they can practice safely, the simulations are a great place to do that. Well, you know, everything you're saying about that is near and dear to my heart because of my day job. So I feel Good. very well connected to you on that. One Good. thing that you said, and, and I'm curious, we, we, you said that people, many of these folks don't have home computers and, and I'm sure computers in the traditional sense, that's probably true. Yeah. But I want to kind of challenge a little bit the technical savviness of of the average person, even in maybe rural parts of America, where we still see now a high use of gaming systems and tablets and smartphones and stuff like that. So they may not have the latest and greatest Mac and may not be computer savvy in the traditional sense, but they are interacting with technology most likely. Yeah. Have, do you agree with that? First of all, I mean, is that what you're witnessing from, from the folks that your constituents inside your organization? I'm I'm going to sound very age biased and that's not my intent, but like a lot of our workers didn't grow up in the video game era. So yeah. a lot of them are not comfortable with that, but are newer people in the workforce. But um, I would say, yes, that's definitely true, but they may not consider that technology because that's just a way of life for them. Yes. Whereas you and I, we would consider that. And then, I think, you know, even though with their phones, they realize they could do a lot more with them, but they don't. And I think that's where I'm making the distinction is they, they have a computer in their hand. They're just not using it that way. And you did a better job of actually making my point that I was trying to lead to than, than I did in my question, it, which is they probably have more exposure to technology than they themselves give credit to. And I wonder if there's an opportunity for all of us who are trying to lead them down a path of success 
and build their competence and confidence in the use of the enterprise technology, if we can help to bridge that gap a little bit by saying, guys, this isn't as far off as you think it is. I know it seems like rocket science compared to what you're doing over here, but there are 2.6 billion people on Facebook, right? Most likely those people are on Facebook. <laughs> so how are they getting onto Facebook? How are they finding out how to post in groups? Now I will admit, nobody seems okay, to know how to so search well. in a group. What's that? Their kids showed them. Well, that, that may be true. And what now somehow they've made it on, right? Somehow now they've made it on and they're using that technology, right? So I've said for a long time, you know, my dad is 76 years old and he just recently kind of retired as being a handyman, but he was running his entire business from his Android smartphone. And, you know, he fits into that older guy category, but he was still running his business. He had QuickBooks on his phone, you know, on an Android phone. So I just want to make sure for all of us, I'm not accusing you of doing this, but I want to make sure none of us, myself included, are letting that be an excuse rather than look for opportunities where we can say, this isn't as different as it may feel to you. And that is part of our job is to help them recognize that the gap is probably narrower than they feel with their anxiety and that not in their chest. Yeah. And I, I'm a big proponent of learning what their language is. Yeah. So whatever it is they're you know, if they're a car guy, if they're a sports guy, you know, okay, it works just the same. So I take that knowledge that they already have and map it onto whatever the new skill it is that I'm trying to get them to do. And that seems to be really effective. And it takes away those scary words like technology and just says, look, we're doing this just like that. And most things I can find an analogy for, you know, music, you know, if they're a faith-based person, there's something I have in my repertoire that I can paste over to what they already know how to do and help them make that connection faster. I think that's brilliant. I think we probably all have something to learn from that. And it it does speak to the individualized nature of how we have to communicate. So I know sometimes in a large enterprise environment, what you just described doesn't always scale particularly well. It's great when we're kind of doing one-on-one counsel. Uh, it doesn't necessarily scale as well. Nope. But um, I, I'm sure that there are opportunities where we can look for ways to take those examples and then turn them into communications that yep. would apply to more than just one person, right? Inside the organization. Well, I'm, I'm big on the interactive, right? So they, they can choose a path. So if if they're more of a sports person, they or if they're a car guy or whatever, they can kind of go down that path and I can build out that language for them. So it it can be scalable because you know yeah. what, probably 10 different analogies that I could use so they can pick one of the 10 analogies. Yeah. So we can build those modules out the exact same way. That's awesome. Well, I feel like we could have had two podcast episodes, one to talk about your past in the healthcare space, because I really, really do find that fascinating and would love to continue to explore it more. And then another uh, in your field service role, I'm glad we got to straddle a little bit today and cover uh, a little bit of both fronts. And I very much look forward to uh, staying in touch with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed Excellent. it. Excellent. Well, we do need to wrap it up. And so to our audience, I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. Um, I'd like to thank Marie for coming on to the show today. This is a great conversation. Um, with that in mind, we welcome your ideas for future themes or topics that we can discuss on the show. So to our audience, please feel free to leave a comment on the Frontline Innovators LinkedIn page with any thoughts about other topics or other guests that you may have. Friendly reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end -end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges during Skillful's 
next webinar, which we publish on our website. So um, stay tuned to the Skillful Newsletter and uh, we'll communicate all of the upcoming webinars there. Thank you again for your time today, Marie, and we're going to sign out. Thank you.